0: This is A Diet of Brussels. Where are we with uh, court cases and other challenges to Brexit? Um, I'm talking now, what, uh, a week almost since the High Court handed down its judgment in Miller and De Santos, which uh, basically uh, confirmed uh, that the government's case that it could uh, start uh, Article 50 proceedings uh, at its time of its own choosing was not acceptable and that uh, under the terms of uh, the constitutional settlement here in the UK that actually it would first of all have to get Parliament's approval and not simply a uh, motion but uh, a full bill. Now for a lot of people uh this is a uh, you know taken as a uh, a battle in a bigger war to uh, either stop or at least to slow uh brexit down and i i think you know you can understand why people might think that but uh i think fairly brief reflection would show that actually what this shows is that uh, the only thing that's changing here is the uh the way in which uh, we are heading towards Brexit, rather than the destination uh, being modified in any particular way. Let's maybe just kind of unpack all of that uh, a bit, because uh, I think, you know, what this uh, really highlights for me is that, once again, levels of public understanding of uh, the political process are not that great and uh, they lead to uh, inflated or misguided expectations about what will and won't happen. So, if we, you know, think about what uh, is happening here, then we can see that actually uh, there is a very limited uh, impact uh, that comes on a really quite specific one. What uh, Miller and De Santos were arguing was that if the government uh, starts Article 50 that then uh, that process inevitably leads to the exit from the uh, EU which means that EU rights uh, that have been built up uh, will be uh, curtailed. And those rights will have been curtailed without uh, the approval of Parliament. Now uh, for those of you who haven't done your uh, EU law course uh, at university uh, or online, Uh, In the UK, you uh, don't have a uh, codified constitution. Instead, you have uh, parliamentary sovereignty. So Parliament is not supposed to uh, be bound by anyone or anything, uh, even itself. However, in practice, what's happened is that uh, Parliament has accepted limits on its powers, both in the international order... Uh, but also, in the particular case of the EU, through the provisions of the 1972 European Communities Act, which was the act that uh, embedded uh, the accession of the UK into the then uh, European Economic Community. Now this was necessary because the treaties uh, require the involvement of uh, law-making Uh, that has impacts on the national uh, legal order and particularly we might think here about the impact of court judgments uh, but also of the regulations that the uh, European Union produces which have immediate legal effect within member states so unlike uh, Directives, for example, which is the usual way that the, the EU now produces legislation, which uh, need to be translated into national law uh, and gain effect that way, regulations simply just are published and promulgated and they are uh, immediately legally effective. So there needed to be a recognition of that. So even though there have been many decades of legal uh, arguments about whether uh, Parliament is in fact bound by the 1972 Act. In practice, uh, the, the Euro, U, UK has uh, accepted that uh, uh, argument and approach, most famously in a set of cases in the 1990s with Spanish, Spanish fishermen, uh, the Tame case, which ultimately re- resulted in a piece of British legislation being overturned by uh, the then uh, highest court in the land, uh, the uh, Law Lords in the uh, House of Commons uh, because it went against provisions of European law so uh, the, the counter argument was that uh, the Parliament uh, that government made was that this was uh, uh, something that didn't actually uh, limit their rights uh, in a way that went against what Parliament said. And that uh, there was already some authority that derived from the process of establishing a referendum. Now, uh, the judgment that was handed down last week from the High Court was very clear. That uh, the defendant's case was accepted almost unconditionally by the three judges, who were all very senior. Uh, and very clearly said that uh, there were limits to royal prerogative powers. So... Uh, Government, acting in the name of uh, the uh, uh, monarch, uh, has notional powers. But those powers are ones which are given to it in a conditional way by uh, Parliament. So uh, there is a limitation uh, on the treaty uh, uh, powers that uh, government has, um, which uh, mean that uh, it can't be used as a way of bypassing Parliament's authority. Now, uh, if we take that uh, reading, then it's clear that there will have to be some uh, part of uh, uh, parliamentary approval before we can get to an activation. Now, uh, in the government size, their more practical and political consideration is that Uh, really, they have enough complications in the Brexit process without then having to involve Parliament further. So, uh, you know, it was really about kind of trying to streamline and uh, reduce the number of people involved in the process uh, as much as possible. But uh, what the High Court is not saying is anything about whether the referendum was right or wrong or legal or illegal. It's simply saying that Uh, At a point where uh, the government wishes to start Article 50 proceedings, there is a requirement that Parliament is involved. So all of the incredibly uh, virulent media comments uh, and social media comment that has been produced over the last few days about the the High Court judges is really very much... uh, misdirected in uh, that sense, that uh, the judges are not uh, trying to stop the process, they're simply trying to ensure that there is proper constitutional accountability and transparency in what happens, that people's rights are not being abused in this moment of uh, political change. So the judge's concern is not about uh, what decisions are made, it's about that the way in which they are made, that uh, judges uh, apply the law uh, and apply the constitutional assessment. And that requires Parliament to be uh, in control of changes to its powers as much as uh, possible. Now clearly there's uh, an aspect of uh, concern which is that Parliament is full of people who don't want to leave the EU. Um, uh, a majority of MPs uh, uh, were uh, in favour of remaining. And so for some people, uh, uh, one of the uh, logics uh, behind pursuing the various uh, legal challenges that came out uh, during the summer, uh, of which uh, Miller and De Santos is the, the most important, uh, really thought, well, here's the opportunity to uh, make the referendum an advisory one, the Parliament would then reassert itself and come to a more sensible, i.e. a remaining uh, position. Now, this is uh, wishful thinking uh, of uh, the most obvious kind. Firstly, Parliament as a whole is uh, more than aware that uh, whilst it might have sovereignty to make its own decisions, uh, in an age of uh, popular uh, democracy, there is no sense politically and constitutionally in passing a piece of legislation to hold a referendum to make a decision and then to ignore that decision or to overturn it. So uh, in purely political terms there is a very little willingness to fight the decision uh, or to uh, take no regard of the decision made back in June. Secondly, there's a more instrumental decision, which is that if you look at the constituency-level results uh, across the UK, then about 70% of uh, MPs' uh, uh, constituencies uh, voted to leave. So there's a clear majority of constituencies where uh, a leave position is uh, predominant. And that if uh, Parliament were to uh, go against this, then at the point that there was a general election, then uh, those MPs might well find themselves out on their ear that there would be an understandable wave of uh, unhappiness and discontent discontent and uh, protest which would ultimately uh, weaken their position, not to mention their authority. And I think also, you know, there's just a kind of uh, a more tactical view, which is that uh, whilst a lot of MPs did vote to remain, that was done on fairly pragmatic grounds, that there aren't many viscerally pro-European MPs left in the chamber these days. And having seen the, the result, quite aside from the constitutional niceties of the matter, there is a sense that the debate has changed, that a decision has been made by the people... Uh, and whether one likes it or not, one has to respect it uh, and uh, adapt to the new way of things. So uh, whilst we have heard from one or two people, people like uh, Ken Clark, uh who say that they will vote against the triggering of Article 50, that is going to be a very exceptional kind of position. Uh, Ken Clark, I can't see wanting to stand at the next election. Uh, he doesn't have to think about... Uh, the uh, electoral consequences for him and he might actually feel that because very few people are doing it there is value in at least taking the opposite position to lay down a marker of some kind uh, but not really an expectation of uh, any success on that front so ultimately if we end up with a vote in parliament then that is likely to be passed so actually the bigger question is what are we likely to have that vote and if we have a vote then what's it going to involve well uh on the first part of that uh the government's already said that it will challenge that uh, decision of the high court so there is a hearing uh penciled in for early december in the supreme court there's a bit of a question mark about whether there will be enough uh, money for uh, the claimants in a case that was heard in belfast Uh, ...a couple of weeks ago, uh, which was uh, defeated uh, about the impact on uh, Northern Ireland's uh, arrangements... uh, ...about whether they'll be able to join that appeal. There's uh, certainly a desire to do so, but uh, the funding uh, aspect uh, is one which is uh, unclear at this stage. But in any case, the Supreme Court will uh, do its hearings in early December... Uh, that it could potentially produce its uh, finding in uh, the period before Christmas, or certainly very shortly afterwards. Now, uh, two points really on this. One, the Supreme Court at the moment, you would have to imagine, would find in favour of the High Court decision. Um, Simply because the the depth of support for the claimant's case uh, in the High Court was are uh, almost complete, that there wasn't a very strong articulation of uh, any uh, support for the government's position. So there's a challenge here really for the government. If they want to f- make the same arguments then it's hard to see how that will actually translate into a uh, a successful challenge. So there might well be a, a decision to take a different tack. And actually, one of the things that uh, the government could do to overturn Miller and DeSantos is to change their position from the High Court and say that actually Article 50, once it is triggered, is reversible. Now, uh, this matters because uh, Miller and DeSantos argued that uh, the process, once begun, cannot stop and necessarily leads to an exit. It served their purpose, it also served the government's purpose to argue that this was the case. But there is plenty of uh, debate and discussion, uh, and certainly my own view would be that Article 50 could be stopped. Certainly if both sides uh, decided that they wanted to stop the process, then uh, there wouldn't be any uh, political problem with that. And uh, EU treaties can be rewritten uh, very quickly if uh, everybody is so minded. Now, uh, if the government took that line, that Article 50 could be uh, uh, terminated uh, and revoked, then that would pull the rug out, really, from the Miller and DeSantis argument and say, well, no, there's no automaticity here, uh, and that there would then be uh, further opportunities for discussion and debate. So there is nothing uh, that the grounds that they've uh, invoked now are much weaker, if not uh, completely uh, broken. The problem with that is that firstly, uh, you would need to get a uh, ruling and an opinion from the European Court of Justice. So the Supreme Court would have to go to uh, the Luxembourg Court and say, can you just confirm for us that Article 50 can be uh, stopped uh, or not uh, once begun? Now, as I understand it, the uh, European Court uh, is uh, keen to uh, give its opinion, but it has to be asked by someone, so until that happens it has to wait. In terms of delay, that's uh, relatively unproblematic. The Court could hear uh, and return a a ruling within three months, so that could be done uh, by March if uh, so needed. The difficulty is that uh, if the government took that line and was successful and got a ruling from the ECJ that uh, Article 50 could be stopped, then that would add a whole new level of complexity and problem to the process, because uh, it would show that there was no lock-in of the process. And the argument that once you start Article 50, you are bound to Article 50, uh, would be fatally compromised. And certainly that would mean that until the process was finished finally and definitively, the UK could still stop this process. And for those uh, on Tory backbenches, particularly who want to leave, uh, uh, and preferably leave soon, that would be uh, a degree of uncertainty uh, that would be uh, almost unbearable to them. So the government needs to weigh up what it thinks is the, uh, the benefit uh, of trying that kind of line. I think the, the inclination really has to be to try and avoid that, uh, either asking for an opinion or changing their mind on this, that they might take the view that it's better just to have Parliament's involvement uh, in an approval vote uh, uh, rather than having a, a big question mark over the whole process. Uh, throughout the two years or so, uh, potentially more of uh, Article 50. So with that in mind then, let's assume that the government is going to, to lose in the Supreme Court. What then is this bill going to contain? The logical position is that it contains very little indeed, that it simply contains provisions saying that Parliament gives the government the authorization to notify uh, Article 50 uh, proceedings to begin to the European uh, Union and that will be it. So simply it's simply a one-clause bill. And the reason for this is that if you start adding in other things, you start giving more opportunities for people to go around tinkering. The one thing that I think we can be sure about in any uh, bill process that uh, ensues is that there will be amendments. That... Uh, Parliament is not going to want to get involved in trying to issue substantive requirements or limitations on the government, you know, we want this, we want that, or we want it to stop. That instead, um, there would be a, uh, a set of uh, procedural uh, requirements, they would say, we, demand, we will give you authorisation, but we demand uh, a level of scrutiny and oversight and involvement that you haven't given us to date. So at the moment, Parliament has only got uh, a fairly limited role. There's an oversight committee, which will be chaired by uh, Hilary Bren from uh, Labour. But uh, you know, the no running commentary line that the government has stuck to doggedly uh, throughout this process is one that would have to change, in effect. that There's uh, probably enough uh, uh, of a majority of uh, MPs assuming that Labour can be roused from its uh, internal uh, navel-gazing, to uh, defeat the government on amendments, and certainly you would imagine that the Lords would be sympathetic to that as well, to say that there has to be regular uh, briefing and appraisal uh, and involvement of Parliament throughout the process, and possibly including a final vote uh, to approve the uh, deal that is uh, added. So remember, Article 50 puts a lot of power in the hands of the 27, so there has to be a a qualified majority of uh, the 27, plus the approval of the European Parliament and the approval of the departing Member States. So what this would be doing is fleshing out what the approval of the Member State that is leaving uh, looks like. It would say that there would need to be, say, a parliamentary vote. They might even say, well, we need to put this to a popular vote again. Um, Really, I think it's too early to say uh, what there is. Now, uh, the joy of uh, the British Parliament is that uh, ultimately there aren't really any rules. You do uh, what you can pretty much uh, as you wish. And if the government wants to put through a piece of legislation very quickly, it can do that very effectively. It can guillotine debates, it can make sure that they don't go on too far uh, or too long, uh, and it can just get the whole process uh, moving uh, really quite quickly. Now that matters because ultimately there's a question about uh, the timeline and how this impacts uh, on the process. That if there is a bill, then the government will want to have that bill uh, passed and approved uh, and on the statute books by the end of March so that Theresa May can go uh, and meet her, uh, her counterparts in Brussels and give them the official notification as she has promised. Now this matters... For two reasons, one of them important, one of them less important. The important one is that uh, domestically, Theresa May might look like she is in control of the process, but this is in a highly conditional situation, that she is very much beholden to her backbench, and particularly if uh, there are further losses of MPs, uh, such as Zach Goldsmith or Philip Stevens, as we've seen. Uh, in the past couple of weeks, for whatever reason, that then it doesn't take many uh, backbenchers to uh, work with an opposition that is intent on ejecting the government to uh, trigger a government defeat. And potentially, uh, even without a government defeat, there are enough uh, uh, backbenchers in the Tory party who would say that Theresa May was... Uh, messing about and backsliding, uh, and would seek to remove her and replace her with someone more compliant. So, Theresa May certainly needs to have a very good reason for not hitting the end of March deadline that she's imposed on herself uh, for internal reasons. Uh, probably the only acceptable reason that there is, is that uh, Parliament itself is still passing the legislation, and she can say, I'm sorry, it's not me, it's you. Um It would depend rather on who it is who's doing the delay in Parliament. That might work as the defence if it's the Labour Party who are uh, orchestrating things. It will be less acceptable if uh, it's the Lords who are uh, providing the delay, uh, ping-ponging the bill backwards and forwards. The less important problem, but one which is still substantial, is that the 27 also really want the UK to get going. Uh, remember that you know we're now nearly uh, four and a half months since the vote. We haven't got an official notification. The EU have got basically all their people in place. They are working very hard to scope out the issues. Uh, talking with various people it's clear that there is uh, a lot of groundwork that's already been done and a sense that uh, you know that they know roughly what they're going to do uh, or rather how they're going to do things even if they don't necessarily have a, an agreed political position. The longer that the UK waits, the more uncertainty there is, the harder it is to hold the ring. Not least because uh, already March takes us very close to the French elections It takes us towards the Dutch elections um, and, uh, you know, that will already take the early part of uh, the summer Uh, and then we have the summer break and then we are thrown straight into the German elections, uh, the results of which may take uh, a month or two to reach a a coalition agreement uh, between the uh, assorted parties. So really March represents the last opportunity to have anything meaningful said. Uh, between the parties until uh, the end of the autumn. Now, one level that might suit the 27 to say, well, we've got six months where we don't really have to do anything, we're going to do some technical uh, interactions and some technical detail, uh, some stuff that isn't very political, just kind of uh, ways of working things out. But from the perspective of the UK, that means six months out of their two-year window that uh, is not really very productive. So, uh, in terms of keeping uh, one's uh, partners uh, on side, uh, a further delay really looks like uh, a bad idea. So, difficulties again. And I think this really reflects the uh, uncertainty of the British government about what it is that it's trying to achieve. That you know, The real reason for a lack of a running commentary is that there is nothing to comment on it is uh, a government that talks about recognizing the need to limit or to control free movements but also about the need to access the single market Uh, we heard in recent weeks discussion about sector uh, based deals you know maybe for the car industry or for finance Um, those things don't really hang together very well or indeed at all and uh, neither number 10 nor dexu the new uh, department for leaving the European Union, is in possession of a plan. Uh, There isn't a uh, darkened room somewhere on Downing Street with a big uh, wall chart with a diagram which shows how this is all going to come together. Now, uh, Theresa May needs to work to something. She needs to have something that she... Uh, suggests when she gives her notification and that's the real problem of notification is not notifying per se but rather making a bid trying to frame the debate so uh, the UK hasn't really said what it wants partly because it uh, May doesn't want to repeat David Cameron's uh, problem which was over promising on the renegotiating uh, and then under delivering or so it appeared in uh, public terms So she only wants to ask for something that she thinks she has a reasonable chance of getting. But the 27 are not really willing to engage in substantive discussions until Article 50 starts. And also, they're not really sure what the UK wants. So there's no point them in bolstering up a a big position. You know They're talking very much at uh, an abstract conceptual level, particularly talking about the need to keep the four freedoms together. So for them, there is a... uh, a lack of uh, demand, you know, that they don't, uh, they don't know what it is that they might be asked to provide. And there's no point giving a hostage to fortune by offering something that might uh, be completely relevant to what the UK wants. So uh, one side won't tell, the other won't say, uh, and we kind of have danced a, a bit of a dance around this, and even uh, the bilateral meetings that May has gone through uh, are not really cutting through at that level so ultimately to come back to the starting question of this the legal case is limited in its impact probably what it means is that parliament will become more of an important actor although even that ultimately will be limited by the capacity of the labour party to form an effective uh, opposition I don't think this translates, uh, by the way, into uh, an early general election. I think the uncertainties around doing that are just too great, and particularly uh, as we're on the verge of finding out who's the next US president, uh, which has every capacity to be another big uh, surprise in the style of Brexit, that uh, uh, Theresa May is going to uh, stick with the bird in the hand rather than the two in the bush. However, I think what this tells us is that uh, Brexit is an immensely complicated process, legally, politically, economically, socially, Um, and that we're still very much in a phase, several months in, of issue discovery, that we're discovering things pretty much every day that need to be dealt with, need to be integrated into a bigger question. But unless and until we have some clarity about what the UK wants, then this is not really going to resolve itself. And probably the only way that we get to some clarity is that we need to have a national debate uh, about what it is that the UK wants to achieve more generally in the world. You know, what's its position in international society? Now, I say that not in any expectation that it will happen, but rather in observation. Um, And uh, perhaps we will get to something one day. Thank you for your time. Uh, If you want to listen back over our earlier episodes, uh, you can find them still at www.adietofbrussels.com and I'm very happy to take requests and suggestions for new episodes. Uh, I'm happy to say that this was actually triggered by uh, an exchange with uh, Michael uh, Hoyland in uh, Denmark who uh, said that he liked listening to them and wondered why I haven't done one recently. So uh, I'm happy to oblige on that front. But uh, keep listening and doubtless there will be more uh, that we can talk about soon.